Welcome to the 56th episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. My name is Drew Ogrizek. And I'm Alex Moxon. Hi. So we've had a pretty interesting week this week. What did you get up to, Alex? Uh, this week I've mostly focused on coding. I've only gone out to one event. Mm -hmm. It was on Tuesday. So it was Van FF Nights. It was a lot of fun. So one thing I really enjoy about this, uh, this is actually where we met Hussein, and I think I mentioned this on the program last week. But essentially, it's four speakers and who are at some degrees of success in their careers. And they talk about a time in their life where they, they really, things didn't go their way in a, a very big way. And seriously, we all make mistakes. But what separates us from the pack is how you rise from your failures. So really interesting to see these people speak open and honestly and really providing the forum to both humanize their, their progress and also to... I guess, kind of help inspire people to keep going if things go wrong. So that I really appreciate. And it, it's a lot of fun. They have a panel discussion at the end, too, and there's some pretty interesting questions. And I really enjoy these events. So what was the sort of takeaway? The takeaway is, I mean, things happen. And <laughs> it happens differently in each person's life. And I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's what you do when you're faced with adversity and how you recover from that. You can't stop bad things from happening. You can't stop all bad things from happening. It would be nice if you could, but you can't. So essentially, it's just learning from that, moving on, doing things better. Would it be nice if you could? You know what? It might not, actually. Something that kind of stuck with me a little bit. Remember, I think it was in 2005, Steve Jobs gave a speech at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said was something like, death is nature's greatest invention because it gives way for the next generation, the new ideas. You only have a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. So there's only so much you can accomplish in that time. And you, know, you can go for it as hard as you can. And then you have to give way for that next generation of ideas. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wasn't sure if, it, if that was bordering on a mor morbid thought or on a very, what's the opposite of morbid? <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of morbid. Right. <laughs> um, enlightening? Perhaps I was thinking more something along the lines of life, like if morbid plays mm. into death, then inspiring, maybe. inspiring. Yeah, maybe inspiring something that adds like creativity and zest to life. Okay. And I thought, yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think that mistakes are, are kind of the same thing. I think especially with with developers, it's it's something that's expected. If anybody has any familiarity with with testing as well, we usually look for you know, tests that fail first mm -hmm. and then make them pass. So we're expecting that failure. And that's actually one of the things I love about development is that failure is embraced. Nice. That's the failure leads to success. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, you only see people who are at the top of their careers, like in the media, and people think, oh, it's so easy. But you don't realize, you know, they tried maybe 900 times for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So something for me this week that I've been up to is we've been kind of reevaluating or evaluating our interview process, what that means, what it should look like. There's some interesting discussion. So we had we have an internal wiki, and somebody put up a a quote from a fairly famous blog post that we'll link to down below. It's actually from a book as well, and it's something like, 
you wouldn't hire a juggler without seeing him juggle first. That would be ludicrous. Why would you hire a coder without seeing them code first? And for some reason, I just really, I really dislike this analogy. And I, I had a little bit of a discussion about that and then realized, you know, it doesn't matter <laughs> because it doesn't matter whether the analogy is good or bad. Our discussion is on the interview process, not on that analogy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I still, I really, it, it kind of threw me because I don't think juggling and, and coding are that good of comparisons. What do you think? Well, I think if you factor in context, what she, maybe they might be. Perhaps. So my, my kind of thing against this is that I probably would hire a juggler without seeing them juggle first because I don't care. It's juggling. Mm -hmm. No offense to all those professional jugglers out there who have great jobs working in large tech com uh, juggling companies, <laughs> of whom I'm sure there are none <laughs> listening to our podcast. <laughs> it might be a fun hobby or an interesting thing for maybe a child's birthday party. Although I can't imagine that even being that interesting. I think juggling and, and coding, sure, you might be juggling ideas in your mind or thinking of a lot of things. So that might be something interesting. But I don't think that the result of juggling is very important, but rather the process and, and it's a visual thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the significance of it is also far less than something like coding, where I might consider something more along the lines of bridge builders or some other type of you know, either engineer or or construction mm -hmm. that has to, the designs and the actual work has to stand a test of time. And then on the other hand, when it comes to code, it's probably still easier to, to modify if something does go wrong and still somewhat, you know, somewhat less mission critical. And you might argue that, oh, well, if you're working at a bank and the financial things, people aren't dying though. You know, whereas if you build a bridge and it's a faulty bridge, they might be. Yep. And at the same time, you know, would I, would even if I made this analogy with bridge builders, would I be asking them to build bridges in front of me during an interview before I, I set them out to build a bridge? Hopefully not, because that would probably not be a bridge that would stand the test of time. <laughs> right. So, so I'm not actually sure that there is going to be a very apt uh, analogy anyway. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, this is a rabbit hole of a conversation that doesn't really matter, other than I think maybe we shouldn't have that analogy as a as a kickstarter to a conversation of we should what what we should expect in an interview <laughs> so going back to that what do you think what are some types of things you might think should be or would be important in an interview with a software developer well i think it's nice to be able to see how somebody thinks through a problem so i think giving a coding example having them time box it throwing in some curves to see how they handle adversity would be important. One of the things that um, that I want to touch on is some people are really good live. Some people are able to perform. Uh, they know their skills inside and out. And other people might as well, but sometimes it's just that pressure to perform. So I think that when you have something like that in a live environment, it can be a little bit disconcerting and might filter out people that would otherwise be really great for the job. I totally agree with that. And in fact, it was something that I brought up, uh, Professor Richard Nesbitt, who was, I think at the time when he started the, the, the research was at Yale and then later at the University of Michigan. But he wrote a book based on um, years of studies called The Geography of Thought. Mm -hmm. And while he was at Yale, one of his grad students, I believe she was Korean, approached him and said, you know, the grading system's not fair. We're evaluating people 
you know, in a cultural context that plays more toward the American culture. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly that sort of thing. Talking through your solution as you're writing it out on the board is very much a Western sort of style of culture. And so the study, which took place, I believe, over a 10-year period, which involved, you know, Yale, University of Tokyo, Beijing, Seoul National, I believe, as well. So mm -hmm. it was kind of kind of quite interesting. But it looked at it looked at how people think, how people evaluate problems and other things, not just, you know, should we be grading people based on whether they're they're speaking through a problem or not. And an interesting thing was that, you know, in, in the West where we have, I think, much more of an argumentative style of culture and conversations. Mm -hmm. If a parent is angry at a child and yells and, and asks a question, they expect a response. They also expect the child to look at them and respond. Whereas in a lot of Asian cultures, that looking at the parent while they're yelling at you and responding, th this is just, you know, adding, adding fuel to the fire. Mm -hmm. You would not do it. You'd put your head down and be quiet and listen. So this different cultural context. Now, this is also, you know, generalizing. So even within those cultures, you'll find people who may excel at one thing or another. So yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Then on the other hand, you might say, who cares? You know, if we're conducting an interview, we might get some some people who come through and, and don't pass. Mm -hmm. And so we've weeded out potentially good people, but are we left with good people in the end? Right. So, I mean, sure, it's still a waste of time for both sides, but the end result, you still end up with good developers. So should we care? It's a really good question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that either. I think having it in your mind is something that it's good to note and you want to give people interviewing the every chance they can to be as good as possible. Interviewing someone isn't, I, I think it's, it is about finding their weaknesses, mm -hmm. but it's not about making them feel weak or feel bad. Preferably, everybody who goes through an interview, at least with us, will, will leave thinking, what a great company, what a great job I did at the interview. I really like that place. And even if I don't get the job, I would recommend it to somebody else. You know, those are things that if we do our jobs as interviewers, that we'll have as a result. People will, will like the company even more after interviewing. So I think that's that's kind of a, a, a goal that we have in mind mm -hmm. and to help people to perform as well as they possibly can. And we do keep in mind that, you know, under people working under pressure sometimes do get nervous. But then on the other hand, if you're looking at people with, you know, five or six years of experience professionally and maybe an equal amount of education, mm -hmm. how nervous are you going to get walking through maybe a, a relatively simple algorithm problem, maybe pretty nervous. But if, if so, then are we really doing our jobs making people feel good? <laughs> right. Good, uh, good point. And I mean, one thing I think that that does assess is how people will perform on your team, mm -hmm. realizing that people are going to be wanting to do their best at the interview and put their best foot forward. So they might be a little bit more nervous than they would be. It's always interesting to see how people are, too, when they join a team, how they differ between the first three months that's that sort of probationary period and how they are after. Mm -hmm. I've seen marked differences in uh, in people who are sort of like putting on that mask and putting on the performance. And then once the three months is up, things change drastically. And sometimes they don't. But I think ideally that's what you want to screen for is you make sure that, you know, that you're, you're hiring the person who's, yes, trying to do a good job, um, but also really cares deeply about what it is that they're doing wants to impact the team in a positive way and wants to build great things with your team. I think that's really what you look for. Maybe, yeah. I think those are interesting things that are also quite important, but I think they're also not just individual traits. 
So as an example, like the three month period that you said, that could have been somebody that was very eager. They did start, but management was horrible mm. in, to them mm -hmm. or didn't match their personality. Maybe that would have been something you'd be screening for. And so maybe they didn't feel empowered. They felt powerless trying to trying to get things done. And after about three months, they've kind of just reached their limit and we're starting to give up. Maybe. I mean, not necessarily, but I, I like to try and look at things from the other person's side. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to do. Mm. But anyway, yeah, so I picked up this book called Cracking the Coding Interview, and I thought it would be an interesting thing to look through while we evaluate our process. And apparently, so have a lot of other people, so, so, so much so, in fact, that the author decided to include some sections for people who are evaluating their interview process. And, okay. and so that was pretty interesting. And it seems like, so I've just kind of started out with it, you know, just flipped through, probably read about the first 40 pages. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's some, some pretty interesting things. They talk about, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft hiring processes, and a lot of them, and Apple, and one other that I, I don't even know the company and didn't look it up. Mm -hmm. I might be ashamed later once I do. <laughs> um, but so they talked about the, the interview process and how it's it's quite similar. They're all hiring quite similar things. And one thing I thought was quite interesting as well was, you know, if somebody's asking the question, what's a Microsoft question? What's mm -hmm. a, an Amazon question recently or things like that, then that they're missing the point of these interviews. Right. And there's not often a, this is a Microsoft question. This is an Amazon question. It's the types of questions that they're looking for and, and they're evaluating. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was pretty interesting. And it seems like for most, for the most part, you know, the uh, algorithms and data structures are fairly common throughout all of them at all levels, mm -hmm. but particularly for people just coming out of college or, you know, people without actual real world experience, then those would be, it seems like the types of questions that they'd be focused on more. Whereas people who do have experience, they might be looking more at um, like systems design and depending on the company, scalability can be quite important mm -hmm. or sometimes algorithm optimization and, and things along those lines, which I thought was pretty neat. You know, and it's not, and I think there's a big difference between what some of the larger companies are doing in their interview process and some of the smaller startups. Definitely. Yeah, before getting into to coding, I actually have a background in HR. Mm -hmm. Not not a very long one, maybe three years. Mm -hmm. So I've run the gamut from interviewing people to you name it for various different positions. And for one thing I've noticed is that large companies have a really complex process typically. And there's a number of reasons for that. Sometimes it's just the oversight that's required. They have a large board of shareholders. They've got you know a certain amount of budget uh, that has to be allocated to each project and everything's got to be a well-oiled machine um, and then startups uh, you kind of want to find somebody who is everything's got to be well-oiled well so I that's think, the reason why they have a process in place you know what i honestly think that that might be one of the reasons why it is so process driven that and avoiding risk or mitigating risk really the more process you have in place the more you can say well you know this person made it through these five different gates we did our best and it kind of shifts the blame back to, I guess, back to the individual, maybe. That's interesting. So I had a very different experience. I worked for Samsung in the Samsung neighborhood of Seoul mm -hmm. in the, the head HR office. And we interviewed probably 15,000 people per quarter, wow. a third of which got hired. Mm -hmm. And the process was, I thought it was amazing. It was a really good process and it was continuously iterated upon. And it even, you know, Samsung's one of the largest employers 
in South Korea mm -hmm. and considered by many to be, you know, a very, it, if you, if you go through your life, you know, you go to the right kindergarten, mm -hmm. which leads into the right elementary school, which leads into the right junior high, which leads into the right high school, which leads into the right university, then maybe you can get into Samsung. And if you do, then you're like set as long as you're able to work you know, 7.30 in the morning till 11 p.m., six oh, wow. days a week type, well, depending on the position. Right. But yeah, you work pretty hard, but it's it's kind of considered like if you get into Samsung, then you're gonna have a good life. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's quite a big deal. Oftentimes, it's these people's very first interview ever. Wow, okay. Right, and it's a, a, it's a full day and it consists of various different parts of it. Mm -hmm. But Samsung goes so far as to have an SSAT. Samsung aptitude test. Okay. And the idea with that is what they'd like to do is have a screening test that people would, if they pass, 100% of the people who pass would get a job at, at Samsung. That's, however, not the case. And so what ends up happening is about a third of the people who are able to pass it interview and end up getting the job. And I mean, I often wonder, you know, how many, how many people who might have passed the interview get screened out from the SSAT. But there is a limited amount of people who are going to get get hired like i said if if the interview uh, when i was there about you know 15,000 people per quarter and about a third of them get hired so that's roughly 20,000 people a year mm -hmm. and it, i thought that that was really interesting some of the things i really liked about it that i haven't noticed from cracking the code interview that i it actually kind of st stuck out to me these companies like microsoft or like amazon like google they're tech companies and you'd think they'd have much more process in place. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt we had, a, we did a really great job of eliminating the, the human sort of gut feel out of the interview decision. And there were specific things we were testing for. We had specific ways of testing them and we had multiple people. So we'd, we'd have different sort of number systems that we'd evaluate these different criteria on and we'd look at all of them. Uh, and, and that was pretty interesting. Whereas when we look at, uh, at least according to the, this book, when we look at this, a lot of the questions that are being asked, for example, like what sort of algorithm questions might somebody ask or what sort of data structure questions might they ask during the interview is completely up to the interviewer, which is interesting. And I'm sure they do. I'm sure it hasn't gone fully into depth about that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they do have some interview training and they do have HR processes in place. But But that was interesting to hear you say that you know, having had experience in HR, the reason for this is to have a well-oiled machine. But I thought, what, you know, what does that mean? Is, does that mean there's no reason for these processes? No, I think it's to make sure that you're hiring the right candidate. They fit within the, the procedures and protocols. And I don't know, to be honest, I think there should be more of the, the gut feel questions because those are often, if you interview a candidate and they fit according to the metrics, but just something is off, usually that's a bad hire to generalize. I've found, whereas somebody does a pretty good job and you just have a great feel, you think that they'll be a good fit with the, the company. Often those people are people that become stellar performers. I think, it, yeah, that's, it's an interesting question, an interesting point to bring up. I think it really depends on uh, like so many factors there. But one thing is, you know, you have a gut feel or I have a gut feel. What's that gut feel? Where's that coming from? You know, that, what does that have to do with the interview? So it, that could be something like, you know, this, this candidate looks like somebody who bullied me when I was in elementary school. I've got a gut feel that I don't like this person. That, has, that is a really unfair sort of bias that I might have based on, on 
nothing really. And I think those types of gut feels, mm -hmm. as much as you can be can be eliminated, should be. Now, on the other hand, with a lot of the larger companies, when you look at who should have that, who should have the right to say, oh, I don't like this person, mm -hmm. if anyone. And if your process is in place and your process is good enough, then I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think it sh you should ever have to rely on something like a gut feel, which don't really think are ever going to be anything but baseless. Interesting. Well, that's a good point. So let's get to your week. You said uh, you already mentioned your meetups, but what about your coding stuff? Right. So this week I did a couple of things. I'm looking at deconstructing the, the meetup API, which I just found out you and James have both done. So mm -hmm. I'd still like to go through the exercise though and just see kind of what what results I can have returned, see how I can filter the list. Mm -hmm. And just going through the process of understanding an API. So that's what you've been doing this week? That's what I've been looking into. Of course, gotten a little bit busy. So that'll fall into next week, most likely. And I stumbled into my first rabbit hole. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I've been focused on looking for tutorials, which I've kind of, I've been using basically since the start. One of the people that's associated with Adaptech recommended Scotch. <laughs> And I'm not sure if you meant the website or the drink. No, I'm joking. Mm -hmm. But scotch.io is a, a really awesome resource. So they have some great tutorials there. So what did I do? I searched for that tutorial and then I did about 20 other things or actually 10 other things in about 20 minutes. And uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Interesting. So, okay. So what was that tutorial? You said scotch.io. You searched for a tutorial? Yeah, I searched for a tutorial on TDD, so test-driven development, mm -hmm. uh, Node.js and Mocha. Mm -hmm. So I think I've, I've bookmarked it. I haven't okay. watched it, but I will watch it for next week. Okay. So with regard to coding, what mm -hmm. did you do this week? Searched and bookmarked things? <laughs> no, I actually did a little bit. So what did I do? Pretty much every time I have my, my computer open, I'm, I'm opening up terminal, sometimes VS Code to look through our projects and just really trying to get more familiar with the environments mm -hmm. and how everything all works together. Sounds pretty cool. Do you have any specifics? Do I have any specifics other than the Meetup API and that tutorial? No, but there are a couple of projects that I'm working on uh, that I'm just shadowing on for our client projects. Okay. So just... you looked into looking into something <laughs> oh, uh, and made some bookmarks and <laughs> you have some interesting intentions. Did you write any code this week? Did I write any code? No, but I think next week That's what I need to do is go through that tutorial and write some tests. Mm -hmm. I think using Mocha for Node.js. Yeah, so that sounds really cool. I've heard different takes and different stories or different people's opinions on you know going through tutorials versus mm -hmm. just having something in mind and trying to build it out versus other things. And yeah, what do you think? What do you what do you think are some good do you think it's better to do a go through a tutorial or better to have something in mind and, and just build it out and try and look up documentation? I think it depends where you're at with your uh, your skill level, really. Yeah. For me, I appreciate having uh, kind of a walkthrough. I really enjoy pair programming because mm -hmm. I can watch what somebody's doing who's more experienced mm -hmm. and I can learn from what they're doing right. Mm -hmm. And then if I have any questions, I don't need to necessarily ask those there. I can always watch. I can you know, remember some of the things I wanted to inquire about and look that up either through documentation or through a tutorial just to make sure that I'm not asking too many questions to slow down the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really, I, I really like pair programming as well. I think. I'm actually really surprised with some of the places that I've worked that we don't do more pair mm -hmm. programming. Mm -hmm. I think as far as like onboarding, I think it's a great, a great way to onboard someone, walk them through the system, Absolutely. show them what's there. And it's just, it, it's in my opinion, at least, it's just so much faster than looking at horrible, outdated, poorly written documentation in some wiki somewhere. Yeah. 
And I've, I've just been incredibly surprised at how, how bad sometimes, you know, technical documentation in the tech industry is. Mm -hmm. So what have I done to combat that? Not a whole lot. <laughs> and I think that's, that's something that's showing me, okay, if there's, if there's a pain point that I had or I've felt, there's something I can start to do something about. Right. So what could I do? I, and I think that there's, there's a couple of things. One, I can contribute to better documentation. Mm -hmm. I know what, like for us, our internal wikis aren't going away. I really wish they would. I hate wikis for tech documentation, for technical documentation. I think they're absolutely not the right thing. I think they're great for for online, open, collaborative dictionary, encyclopedia type stuff like Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, I don't think they're that great. I think that you know, technical documentation as far as how a product uh, goes, that it's interesting. I I kind of like readme files, but I also don't think they should be too. Everything needs to be maintained, and mm -hmm. so unless you have some sort of coupling between your code and your documentation, mm -hmm. then they're going to get out of sync. And I, I think that that there might be some solutions out there. I haven't looked too much, but I think that's a pretty hard problem. And I think that having good code is very good. And so going back to that, if you have people who understand certain parts of your system and people coming on that don't, I think, you know, pair programming, tearing up, spend a week, spend two weeks. Pairing, I think that could save so much time. There are some things where maybe you should put this in the wiki or you should put that in whatever type of documentation you're using. Mm -hmm. And it, things that are hard to remember, you know, nobody remembers, but I don't think that should be your, your onboarding procedure. What do you think? I agree. I think when you're first joining the company, one of the best things that can happen is on day you've got sort of, actually, I'll give you a specific example. One of the companies I worked for, we had buddies. So the first week we were sort of paired with our buddy mm -hmm. and they just walked us through the system, helped us get on board uh, with various different, like, here's how you sign in. Let's make sure you've got a, an access pass and all of those things. And it's it's such a I find it's a much better process rather than here's a, a manual. Read through it. Ask me if you have any questions and always being busy. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. That's that's just the worst. So it's really nice when you've got somebody there to, to welcome you first day. Maybe you even have like a, a computer setup, which is also a good sign. Yeah. But yeah, there's nothing worse than being faced with. Here's a manual. Read through it and kind of ask me for questions uh, but don't bother me with questions is mm -hmm. kind of implied yeah it's just not a welcoming environment so at the same time i mean people are busy i think there is something worse which is there's your desk see you in a week <laughs> <laughs> onboard yourself would probably be worse i mean at least you got a manual yeah that's true <laughs> that's true i've actually been through that as well too. yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> that's okay it's all good Absolutely. Okay, so it sounds like you have some pretty exciting stuff coming up for next week. For next so week. on your plate, you're looking at there's Node.js, Mocha, and TDD. Mm -hmm. I guess TDD with Mocha. Yep. And uh, I looked at Postman as well last week. So just getting more familiar with that and figuring out a better solution other than VS Code, because that's what I'm using currently for projects. Mm -hmm. I don't love it. So I'd like to... What are some pain points you have with it? Um, it just, it seems a little bloated, honestly. Okay. In what ways? Uh, there's just too much stuff there. So I'll give you a specific example for writing. So I've started writing again. I've written for many, many years. I haven't published anything. It's just more something I, I do. So for writing, instead of Word, which is what I would typically write in before, mm -hmm. um, I actually, so since I'm running Linux, I actually don't have Word, which is a blessing. I'm not a big fan of it. I think ever since they changed it drastically in, I think it was 2007 to 2010, mm -hmm. the version, everything changed and there were just too many buttons that just didn't really seem to make any sense. 
I had to relearn a whole program and I just wasn't a fan of it. I can remember that. I was actually working as an editor at the time okay. uh, and writing and editing English texts, mm -hmm. textbooks. And I remember going to work one day and just really feeling angry. And then I realized I was running Windows instead of Mac OS. <laughs> uh, so I actually really enjoyed Word on Mac. Mm -hmm. And it was just because, you know, I had, I had my workflow, I had whatever. And there weren't, it didn't seem as cluttered, even though the functions were quite similar. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I bought a book on Word and read through it. And it, it helped to really speed up my productivity as far as, you know, different. I think that was really my first step into uh, revisioning. So you had different versions and you could have your different edits, color coded, things mm -hmm. like that. And that became a really interesting part of uh, my job at the time. Nice. And so I, I ended up liking it, but, and I, I ended up liking the changes as well, but it took me a while to get used to them. But you're right, it, it, a lot of the software, the office suite in general has gone from something relatively simple to something much more complex. There's just a lot more tools. Yeah, for sure. I know, I think simple is best. So I'm actually writing in just a simple text editor. Mm -hmm. I have Pluma, which is included with Linux. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it works. I mean, it's simple. I can write out the words. That's all I need. Right. Pluma, which is included in Linux. So that's this really interesting. It sounds like a, which, which version of Linux are you using? Ubuntu Mate, which I know you're not a fan of. Just because of the name <laughs> is and the, the people call it Mate and not Mate. Right. Which, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's a good operating system. So I guess that comes with the Ubuntu Mate. Yeah, it seems to be just installed. So yeah, it's a text editor. When you crack it open, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. You can open, save, and print. Not that I print, mm -hmm. but uh, search so, for things. So getting back to the question, what does that have to do with VS Code? What does it have to do with VS Code? I think if I could find something like VS Code that is more, so to create an analogy, something I see VS Code as more like Word, whereas if I could find something that's like Pluma as far as a, an editor goes, that would be even better. Interesting. Okay, so maybe Vim or VI or something along those lines. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where you're going with that. But that, yeah, that seems pretty interesting. And I guess editor choice is very... It's very subjective. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that a lot of the people I work with now are using the JetBrains IDEs. Right. And those seem really cool. So those are also, I mean, they're much more bloated, quote unquote, than Visual Studio Code would be. But they, they have a lot of very interesting productivity tools, I think, built in mm -hmm. that sometimes I see the way that they're working and I'm like, oh, that looks pretty cool. So I'm, that's something that's on my sort of to-do list. Now, the interesting thing with that is the licenses are kind of expensive-ish. So do I want to shell out, you know, 600 or $800 to get a year of licenses to play around with something? But I do think they have trial, uh, trial periods and other things. Mm -hmm. And something I was thinking of as well, we can reach out to them through the podcast and maybe see if we can get some free licenses to give away. So that's my to-do for this week as well. Awesome, great to do. Make sure to remind me because I'll probably forget. Just kidding, I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure to remember. All right, and I guess that's our week. All right. And we're here with our special guest, Dean Sutton of Insight Diagnostics. Welcome, Dean, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Tell us a little bit about Insight. What is Insight Diagnostics? So Insight Diagnostics is a life sciences company focused on the ability to turn your smartphone into your personal doctor. So our, our ambition is focused on personalized health. So taking a small mobile test mm -hmm. and pairing up that small mobile test with your smartphone to give yourself a biomarker readout on a certain element of your health. 
and our initial focus is on diabetes. Very cool. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty awesome. I've definitely used YouTube as my own personal doctor from time to time, <laughs> so I know how technology can be helpful. Or WebMD, and then all of a sudden you go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which rabbit hole is that? Is it this or is it that? Or yeah, you have a oh, cough no. and you WebMD, and all of a sudden yeah. you've got stage four cancer, yeah. and uh, your arm's gonna fall off. That was last Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last time you were here, Dean, you'd said you had your hands in a lot of different things. Yeah. And one of the things you were doing, you were consulting with Istuary. I think they had their innovation labs. Yeah. Idea Labs was Idea was Labs. That's right. Yeah. So I guess what happened? You ended up getting really busy. You were doing some other things. And how did you end up transitioning from that to where you're at now? Insight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely not with Istuary anymore. Like I mentioned the, in the first uh, podcast with you, I my main passion is supporting entrepreneurs in technology, building something from nothing that solves a key problem and fostering that whole industry, helping people right. get what they need to take their company to the next level, specifically things that I, I say like really matter, consequential companies working in things like, you know, energy, health, food, water, communication, education, things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was working with, with Idea Labs. So in, in my kind of career of working with, within startups and with startups on the advisory role, you know, certain things are time consuming. And so we had Insight Diagnostics already put together back in uh, mid-2015. So, you know, in, in the role where it just took time, I just decided, you know what? No, we, we really, we hit a little bit of a, of a milestone with Insight. And I just said, you know what? I got to put more time into this and we're going to go all in. So I just, I cut off the ties with a lot of the consulting stuff and we went all in and it uh, it's turned out really well for us so far. Very cool. So you're saying you're, it's focused on turning your smartphone into your doctor and you're starting out with, diagnostics of diabetes yeah yeah so the cool like the technology that we have inside of it it's it's electrochemical detection microfluidics but we're putting it into a small device so we call it the, it's just a keychain fob so you look at something like tracker or tile mm -hmm. it's the same thing it's a keychain fob that has a, a small little spot in the bottom that you can deposit a strip right now obviously it's calibrated for glucose for diabetes management but the small device is something that we have a we have this proprietary, we call it an NFC-like NFC protocol. So it's mm -hmm. it's just touch, tap, beep, and communication is, is transmitted. But what we we're trying to figure out is diabetes is, is specific where currently people have to use a device where they have a pouch, a bulky third device, and they all require cables, plugs, Bluetooth syncing, which little kids and elderly people just don't even get me started on that one. <laughs> it's very, very antiquated. It's 20 years old. So what we did was we just... We developed this technology and we kind of used what Elon Musk talks about. He made popular that first principles engineering thinking. So we, we looked at the technology that's available today, what tests you can't do, why is diabetes still so antiquated? So the obvious part there is there's a regulatory barrier and threshold. But what we said is the technology exists in this microfluidics world to test for a specific biomarker in your blood. And in fact, NASA developed a small little desktop device 20 years ago that could measure 21 biomarkers in a, in a simple disk. So obviously the world is dematerializing, things are shrinking, technology is more powerful, smaller and cheaper. The thing is, it's because of the regulatory burden, things just haven't really made its way to the consumer quite yet in something so common as diabetes. And we said, we can shrink that and jump in there. So that's kind of interesting. I see uh, in a lot of places we have this regulatory burden. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you said the, the diabetes tools that were there were kind of antiquated. Yeah. But maybe this whole regulatory uh, regulatory burden that I guess comes from the government and comes from the bureaucracy there, maybe that's very antiquated and we can do something about it. I was thinking, you know, a lot of different things that we'd like to do, 
we just can't because it, there's this process that takes years and years and years sometimes. Yeah. And if you have some with something like technology, I think this is quite different from coming up with a medicine that you need to conduct a study over so many years to see the more long-term effects of something. But with technology, by the time if you had to go through 10 years or 15 years of testing, by the time you had something out, it would be outdated. That's that's exactly the challenge. So like the keyword is you know, decentralization. So we're looking at that across many, many industries. We've now got blockchain, we're seeing transportation with Uber, we're seeing Airbnb. Like these stories have been told time and time again. Right. The last one to really be cracked and the hardest one is to completely decentralize even beyond what's currently happening now in energy and health. Those are the two big nuggets that are hard to crack, but they're controlled by the biggest entities in the world, big pharma and utilities and government. So right. I always make the, the cynical joke that hard up, startups are hard, hardware startups are harder mm -hmm. and regulated hardware startups are insanely hard <laughs> and the that reason sounds like a great party joke <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a very sad party reality right. um and and the cool part about that too i mean on the flip side you're talking about measuring the the market opportunity and technological evolution with the time it takes to cross the regulatory barrier right so you look at that two ways on, on one side if you can have a great team in technology that can create a good product that solves a problem and get past the regulatory barrier, you have that that bit of a, a an entry barrier as well. So you have something really valuable on the other side. The flip side of that is the most important thing in this world is speed when you're when you're talking about building a technology company. Regulatory by nature takes speed and just cuts its head off. So you're looking at, you know, a year or two. So if you're building a widget or even if you're looking at medical devices, for example, the regulatory environment to get through things. You have a different strategy for Europe, Canada, Health Canada, FDA. And sometimes these things can take one, two, three years to get through. So if you're developing technology, you have to create your design controls and secure exactly what your device is prior to submitting mm -hmm. to regulatory. And then it's in regulatory and then it takes a lot of time to go through. So that so makes you, it incredibly difficult to sort of iterate on that or to come out with version two or things like that. In fact, you can't. So the device that you're submitting is exactly what it is and it cannot be touched because you're submitting the very specific technological specifications for that one device. Mm -hmm. And while it's in reg, you can't actually change it at all. As a company, you can have your R&D division developing your next product, but again, that's gonna have the regulatory burden and timeframe. So it's really challenging to get into it and build a technology that will come to market still innovative, valuable, mm -hmm. and using technology that consumers still adopt because you have the natural evolution of technology and you just, you pretty much need to build right now for exactly where things are going to be in three years, if possible. Okay. But in tech, it's hard to do. So that sounds like adding an additional level of problem on top of an already existing problem. Why choose a problem that has that has that additional hoop to jump through the regulatory process? Yeah, well, they're they're extremely valuable. I mean, on the philosophical side, there's nothing more important than your health. Mm -hmm. It is the most antiquated, but any person in the world that's building something important, if they're not healthy enough to build something important and improve our world, they're not going to build it and the world doesn't get it. So philosophically, there's nothing more important than our health. So that's, to me, one of the most worthy areas to operate. And the second is you want to go after, in my, my opinion, is I want to go after solving big problems, big challenges. Those do come with a lot of you know wind in your face to begin with. But at the outset, if like if you look at an example, if you look at the exits for medical device startups or health technology, those those exits are are impressive. Now, you got to remember that it's a very, 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 very small percentage of companies that get there. But the ones that get through usually have a very 
an incredible company because of what it takes to go through. There's no cutting corners or missing steps. So when you do get through, you have a really valuable company. So a regulated company usually stops the, you know, the, the people that are trying or wanting to build something, but don't. So it, you have to really be committed. You have to be sticking through a multi-year strategy and you have to be really committed to these things. So a lot of people that just want to dabble in the, the buzzword of entrepreneurship usually don't get into areas because you know you're going to get uh, your, your butt kicked without a swear <laughs> word. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds pretty interesting. So other, so you're obviously focused on that one thing, but mm-hmm. you still, last time you were here, you said you, know, you, you did have your hands in a lot of different things. So do you still have your hands in other things? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the ecosystem of, of building startups, uh, I'm kind of on both sides of early stage seed financing and just helping startups, advisory with startups to kind of get to the next level. So, you know, the first six months to a year, building what you have with your product, your team, you know, validating who you are, finding that market and developing a go-to-market that isn't just your hypothesis, you validated it in some way. So that that strategy of working with startups is something that I still do. So I brought together, I've, I work within a group called Farm Team, and we call it Farm Team because it's the analogy of a farm team works with a pro athlete and they take them to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing with, I've kind of, it's not me individually, but the farm team's kind of a, a consortium of, of a few select people that are venture capitalists, angel investors, lawyers, people that work on both the public and private sector, but we kind of come together as, as a union with more value with the approach of saying, early stage financing is hard for the right startups. And because of the, the, the breadth of the network of the people involved and the diversity of what they do, a lot of value can be brought to these companies early on. So we take in, you know, a number of inquiries that we all get. We kind of circulate them through, you know, a, a central boardroom, if you want to call it. And then we just evaluate companies that we feel like we could, you know, help or circulate or, or make the connection to, you know, an investment party or a company that would be valuable for them. And so we do all of our, you know, helping of startups through through Farm Team right now. And it's a, it's a great group of guys. And, you know, even with, with Insight and, uh, you know, Quantum and a couple of the companies that I'm involved with, I'm on farm team, but I, I still bring our challenges and, and who we are and what stage we're at to the group and, and ask them their feedback as well, because it's it's uh, universally valuable. Very cool. So let's say I'm with a startup and we have we have an interesting idea and we're working out of Starbucks. Do I go to farm team or what 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 do I have to have to say reach out? Who do I talk to? What's the process like? Yeah, man, the first thing with that, I think one of the big challenges with with incredibly smart people and engineers and developers is that they don't get out of their comfort zone and do the opposite of what is natural to them, which is, you know, coding and developing. So that's the most critical thing to to build your tech. But on the flip side, you need to get out as early as you can and not just read Eric Ries, you know, Lean Startup Handbook, but one of the interesting things, so Insight is, is, and I'm going to circle back to answering your question, but Insight is in Wavefront Accelerator as well as Creative Destruction Lab. So inside of those programs, we've had a really unique perspective into the programs that they offer with startups that are very, they're very hands-on. They're very experiential. So when you look at these books, so my, my advice to someone that's building a startup from Starbucks, figure out exactly what you're going to do and go through the validation model in the format of completing your product, going to people that would use it even before you're ready, have those conversations early on, find out the actual persona and avatar of your ideal customer, and then remove yourself from just the the belief that that's who it is and go confirm 
that you have indicators from them that when you do finish building or you do get to the point that you feel like you're ready for the market, you're not going to have the same challenges that the majority of people do trying to find their first customers and, you know, being bled out by just the cost of running a startup. So I just say, don't just read the lean startup book, you know, get out there and have uncomfortable conversations, put yourself in the position where you'd be operating as a company before you're ready and allow them to really make you feel uncomfortable. But by giving you unique perspective on what they're really going to say when you go to them with the product, are they a real fit? What are the challenges? And, and usually when people are trying to develop a startup, they're building a startup with a fairly large element of what they think the solution to the problem is. The people that make the decision on buying a solution to that problem usually have more perspective than the early stage guys allow them to get. That makes a lot of sense. I think when uh, you're developing a solution, um, typically you're focused on solving that particular problem, but you don't see the nuances and how it might apply to different companies. Mm -hmm. um, you don't understand your customers properly. Really understanding your market, I think, is really integral. So I think that's awesome that you're focusing on that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think there's there's so many layers to it. I'm trying to think of a particular example, but nothing's immediately coming to me. But when you think there's a problem and then you create a product to solve it inside of an industry, but you're not, let's just say for an example, telecommunications or utilities, or you think you're solving a problem. So you have a SaaS product for a bank. If you think you've figured out how your product works, you've done your research about regulatory, why they would adopt, how it works with their customers or their market, you usually create from that perspective saying we're solving a problem. But when you speak to the person that would write the check for the product, they usually bring up all these nuances about how things really work inside of their industry. And it usually involves, you know, even like a cultural fit within companies, what company B2B matchmaking is affected by. And you don't know that till you're right there sitting with them. And these things come out of nowhere. And I feel like the blind spot nuances that a business is aware of in terms of acquiring a product, startups aren't as aware of those nuances. And those nuances, are the ones that either take the buying cycle to be you know, six months or a year, or there's just added elements that are barriers to them adopting your product that you just didn't account for, which means that you can't just go out there and assume that we're going to get three, four, five clients because maybe their buying cycle takes six months, or maybe there's an additional hurdle that you're just completely unaware of. And it just goes back to saying, have those conversations before you're ready so you can build for it right now. So it seems like, I mean, that, that seems to be an ongoing theme that I hear a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm kind of surprised that we are, we're always hearing, you know, go out there, talk to your customers, get the feedback right away. But yet people aren't doing that, I guess, or we wouldn't continue saying it all the time. And, and that's interesting. So do we see people building out their full product and saying, here, we have this thing. Now let's launch a product. But they haven't actually spoken to customers yet. I've done that twice. Mm -hmm. And if I could put into words the pain uh -huh. that you experience from doing that, I would try, but I can't. It's the most painful thing in the world because when you build something, you you put everything into it. Right. And when you try to bring it to the market and you realize you completely miss something, there's nothing that hurts more. But on top of that, you feel like I just literally, in the career standpoint, burnt a year or two of my life or a year's worth of money on this thing. Whatever it may be, it really stings. But I think the biggest factor that comes into play here is just the most simple thing. It's human nature. We're scared of rejection. We're scared of failure. You know, we're, we do more to, you know, avoid pain than we do to gain pleasure. So obviously we're not going to go into an environment that is extremely uncomfortable. We could be told that our dream is not worthy. 
We could be said no, said no to, we could be heckled. So facing those things, it's so it's, it goes back to just the psychology of the founder and human nature. By nature, that's another Elon Musk thing is, you know, being an entrepreneur is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. So it kind of, what that alludes to is that it is uncomfortable and human nature with startups is, I think founders need to combat human nature and almost do what doesn't feel natural and what feels uncomfortable. And then if you're going to take, you know, road A rather than road B, just take road A because you would have taken road B. Just do 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 what you normally wouldn't do, but it's human nature for us to not go into a direct element that would immediately mean failure, rejection, no, and my product isn't good enough yet. Kind Which of thing. sounds kind of interesting because on the flip side of that, then it's also human nature to say, you know, let's let's put ourselves in that exact position, but let's invest a year or two not going there to get there to have it hurt even more. What you're saying, this human nature of yeah. not wanting this rejection is instead of going out there and starting to talk to the customers and getting immediate feedback while building my product mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. then I would actually avoid that yeah. uh, and build out my product. So invest time and money and effort into this product that eventually I know I'm going to have to put out there somewhere. Yeah. And then I'm going to get that, that rejection without having the feedback to help me build that product. So I'm kind of pushing it to the side, investing a lot more time and a lot more effort mm -hmm. kind of. I guess, prolonging the inevitable of actually bringing yeah. it up. You, you're just, you're building, you're just developing a larger risk profile, right? More time, more money, the more, the more you put in and the longer you do that before you go to market just means that is a larger potential liability for yourself. And so that must not look very good to investors <laughs> as opposed to the other, the other side of that. If I go out there and I start talking to people, maybe I do Google form surveys or mm -hmm. napkin survey or whatever I do, but I talk to people, I get feedback, I, I find who my customers are, I, maybe I get some people using it right away, doing some alpha testing, and I have some people and I start building out a product and I get somewhere and whoa, I'm, maybe I'm even making some money. Do I need investors still? What do, what do I do from there? Yeah, I'm I mean, making $200 a month. Now. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy coffee for everyone. <laughs> I, I think that the absolute best way to fund yourself is through your customers. There's a really good book about, I forget the title of it. Maybe we'll find it for the show notes, but it's basically funding yourself through your customers. And it's like the concepts of how to do that. And it relates to pre-selling and whatnot, but the, you know, the best funding comes from revenue. And that's usually what, you know, it's not the first thing that startups generally have, right. but unless you find an, an angel investor early on that has a propensity for your industry and will give you those early bucks to continue, you know, from my experience of sitting across big boardroom tables with many, many, many VCs. There are the no BS points that you have to get to and answer. And if you don't, you don't get funded. And if you do, you get escalated to having more hard questions. And those hard questions just are related to being a real business. And sometimes people forget a business is in business to create a customer and a business doesn't survive unless it makes money. So you can build something conceptually with, with you know, a great idea that solves a key problem. But at a certain point, you got to prove that this thing does something for someone and makes money by doing it. And so to circle back to your question, if you're looking to raise money, you need to be able to show them that you have a direct indicator and proof to what your product is, what the market demand is, show some similar elements, but then also some customer indicators that show dictate how you're going to make money back. Because it's not just, hey, we're going to raise money for a good idea. By anyone putting money in by its very nature means that person is expecting a multiple back. And if someone gives you 100K, 
They're not looking for 110K. They're not looking for 100 with interest. They're looking for a multiple, which means that that money is supposed to get you to a position to find enough customers to multiply that in orders of magnitude. Okay, so coming back to the original question, but slightly reframed now, let's say I'm a team of two or three engineers Mm -hmm. and we have some ideas for building products. What should our first steps be before we even go to Starbucks? What should our first steps be before we start writing code? We have some ideas. There's a couple of us. We want to do some stuff. What do we do? I think you got to take a macro look and look at what some of the latest breakthroughs are from big companies inside of an industry. But I think as a group of talented people that are able to, you know, write code and build something great, I think you've got to first figure out what industry you want to play in to a certain extent before you decide what it is. Because so am that, I doing telecommunications? Am I doing education? Am I yeah. doing something in the medical industry? Exactly. Do you want to do something in gaming? Do you want to do something in VR? Do you want to do something in agriculture? So once you identify exactly what, just identify in a broad stroke what your industry is, mm-hmm. there's ways that you can drill down into even just like top level news sources and press release quotas for a certain industry. And if you do, you know, interesting reverse searches and see what kind of tech is coming out of those specific industries, you can kind of see what these, where the top threshold of innovation is right now. And then you take a step back as intelligent people that have engineering minds and look at, this is what we know is like breaking news right now, but take a step back and you put everything into world, into the mix. What's happening in the world, economics, What's where's technology at? What's the rate of innovation for this one industry? And then you look at where it's going to be. Try to look forward a little bit and say, based on what we know of what's existing, based on what we know of what's going on in the world, based on what we know about technology, here's where we think this industry is going to be in you know two, three years. And then try to look at the ancillary components of where that future picture is. Try to paint a future picture and then see the problems that would inevitably come out. But it's it's definitely kind of going back to the first principles again. Okay, that I, I was actually expecting you to say something like identify your customers, go out and talk to them, <laughs> see if the, see if you have something that can help solve their pain points. Maybe ask them what their pain points are, and kind of, and start to maybe begin with mockups and some sort of you know rather than build out a system, maybe have some visuals. You might have even things on paper or maybe a PowerPoint presentation that you can flip through and say, you know, if we do this, if we do this, will this be satisfying this pain point and get that feedback right away before you even start building out your system and see if, you know, like, let's say, for example, I have an idea and I want to build a new ordering system for, for restaurants because, you know, frankly, I hate going to a restaurant and having to wait for somebody to come and give me the bill. I just want to leave. Yeah. You know, this is a really big problem that I don't, I, I hate this. Do restaurants care, right? So maybe I should go to them and, and talk to them. Maybe yeah. I should survey some customers. Do I? Do I survey the restaurant customers or do I survey and talk to the restaurant managers or owners? You got to you gotta go to who's going to say yes or no to you. So an example, of a, a relevant example to what you just said, the founder of Pay by Phone just created Glance Payments. They actually just went public on the CSE. But they are exactly what you just mentioned. They allow you to take a photo of your bill, pay your bill, and just walk out. Right. So that kind of quick exit, you don't have to interface with your waiter, pay it, and go, and earn rewards. Cool but concept. That still, provides you to, uh, that still requires you to have the bill. It requires you to have the bill. So you got to have some human come and drop it off. Yes. Right. But their threshold barrier of people saying, you know, can you go or not, is people that own the restaurants. Right. And there's a little bit of a tension point with how humans interact with humans relating to tipping and paying. That, mm-hmm. 
that they have to take into account. But again, the, the owners of the restaurants make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So that's their person. But I'm always a fan of just, you know, we, we talked about before identifying, you know, kind of the industry and like where you're going to play, like what's your sandbox. But then you said, you know, make a mock up and show them the problem. The, my favorite thing to do is like once you identify what you feel is a worthy area to build the solution in, you just got to go interview them. Just ask them what they do, how they do it, how they make money. What's the biggest shift in their industry? What's redundant? What's dying? Where do they think it's going to go? Get them to paint. What would the future of your industry look like? And with your engineering mind and them being a big bureaucratic company, you leave that conversation with much more than they have. Very cool. So from there, then I'd go out and build out my product. I have my team. I have maybe even potential customers. They may have even signed something to say, if I do get to a certain level, yeah. then they want to have my product and start to use it, at what point do I go to farm team or reach out or who do I reach out Usually to? it could be it could be right then. But I mean, the main thing I would say is like keep interacting with them. So you leave that meeting with gold and you start to build stuff. Just don't go too far down without coming up for air to check in with, with the industry because they, they help you kind of go and maintain that you're on track. But it could be right away. And one of the main things that's important and thing that we found really valuable, I mean, an example is we were building out our early tech and we said, what's going to get us some proof that we're really moving this industry? And that's why I love the, you know, I love LOIs and MOUs with, you know, agreements with companies because it shows that a company is willing to pay you for something. You have to define it. You got to usually put a timestamp on it too. So what we did was with our product is we went to BC Diabetes. We said, we tested it with them. We showed them. We said, is this a big enough solution? Would you be willing to engage with this and would you use it? They said yes, and I said, "Okay, would you sign that?" And and so we signed an LOI, or sorry, an MOU with with BC Diabetes to conduct a trial with their with with some of their patients. That is gold to all my other conversations that we had. That kind of kicked off our seed round because we're not just raising money to build an ambiguous product and dependent on the people inside of the startup to have the ability and the planning to make that happen. We had a very specific milestone to build towards with an event that's being funded. So we we're funding something specific. And it was, you know, having an agreement with that end company was really valuable. So I'd say the short answer to that is, yeah, get something on paper because it's really right. worth it. So now in that case, that was with the BC Diabetes Association? Yeah. yeah. Not the association, just BC Diabetes. Yeah. BC Diabetes. Yeah. And so having that one mm -hmm. would probably be enough because that's kind of a niche market. And mm -hmm. But in, in the case that I brought up, restaurants, would I, would I stop at one? Would I want to have more? How many conversations would I have? I, I can imagine you know, trying to talk to restaurant owners, some, it might be really easy. Some, it might be really hard. You know, yeah. people might not want to talk to me. People might want to. And so I might say, okay, I'm going to give myself a, for every 10 rejections I get, I want to have at least one conversation. Yeah. And for every 10 conversations I have, I want to get one person to sign on paper and try to maybe have that as a, as a goal. Mm -hmm. How many, how many signatures do I want? How yeah. Many people do Go I after no's have the burn down metric of how many conversations to take a yes. And I think the important thing to mention there too is as a technical founder, you know, it's important to look at, you know, founder dating. Who's your partner on that? Because if you're building your code, you know, come up with a relationship of the most business savvy, likable, charismatic person that you can that would fit that profile and work with them so that their day-to-day -day is interacting and just selling. They're pre-selling, they're doing biz dev, they're they're interfacing nonstop. And what you do with them is you sit down at the end of the day, you take all the data and all the feedback. And you realize how far off you are or how spot on you are. And if you're spot on, you just expedite your your development to get that that viable product to offer your first customers. But I think it's cool to have a focus on finding out, like if you're doing both, it's really challenging, really strenuous to say, 
you know, you spend eight hours a day plunking the code with your other friend. And then, you know, then you got to go put on a shirt and go to all these restaurants and do that in the evening. I think it's a, you know, depending on what company you have and what industry you're in, find a partner that's out there interacting with them so that you're not, but they come back and, and directly, you guys have your own little whiteboard session. You know exactly what the feedback is, but you don't have to be out there doing it. You find someone that that's their natural gift is to talk to people and schmooze and, and get early stage agreements. And they're so natural at it that they'd like to do it even without pay. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I've, I've seen it happen. You know, sometimes people love an industry and they love the woo of saying, oh, I'm part of a startup and I can, I can sell. But if there is some sort of, that doesn't last forever. Right. So maybe they've got a little bit of inspiration and you say, you know what, the pay is zero. And they're like, I'll take it. But they'll do that if you have a big enough painted picture. You know, if you have a vision and you're close to reality and you have the capability to build it, you could do that with somebody, but they're not going to do it forever. So, you know, you know, it'll more often than not involve equity, but that's why it's, time is everything. If you have that darling of a person that it fits the profile of a talker, understands business, can do sales, can interact with your team, even after they fit the profile, you have to realize that even if they don't work for free, it's on equity, you've got a very, very short window before that gets sour. Like, you, so it means that you just, speed is everything. Right. You got a time window to do these things. Okay, so let's say I fit one of these categories. Maybe I'm the, the developer that has an idea. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm the, the talker that wants to hook up with some developers and get some ideas going. What's a good way to, to start? Who do I reach out to? Do I reach out to you? farm team yeah i i think it's it's much much easier for developers and people with that capability to develop at least something visual but it's so much easier for them to find a fairly well seasoned business side of of what they need then on the flip side it would be for me to find the best ios engineer that has experience with hipaa compliant software you know what I mean? So it's it's much easier for a technical group with a pretty laser focused idea to find the business side support, including the people, than it is for them to find engineers. So you got to understand that you guys hold, <laughs> you people hold the uh, the talent and skill set that's immensely valuable. So what groups would you go to? I mean, Alex from Tech Vancouver and Tech Toronto has an awesome group because they bring together so many people like in one room that they went from like not really in existence to coming on the scene and they're putting together incredible events with a lot of people. And I can tell you that not the majority of people there are, are the engineering type. They're, you know, they're of all different varieties. The other thing is, you know, there's matchmaking programs through universities too. So the cool part is you can go to SFU or UBC. They've got some, some grad students there. They've got experience in, you know, if you're working in finance, there's people there. If they're working in, you know, nanotechnology, there's people there. Um, you have the you have business side of, of, of the you know business side is available through you don't want to go one-to-one -one. i mean you can use linkedin to try to go one-to-one -one, but you can go into networks and allow them to kind of go to work for you if you go to the right people at universities and say who's fresh out in this department on the business side that's looking to do something and and maybe start there but you know the the age-old thing industry events you know influential people i always say go to influential people and get them to share it and then universities have a lot of people on the business side that are spinning out all the time very cool. Well, Dean, if we want to reach out to you, what's a good way to do so? Yeah. So I guess one of the easiest things is, you know, Twitter is just at Dean Sutton, mm -hmm. Dean Sutton on LinkedIn, emails Dean at DeanSutton.com. And yeah, it's probably the best way. And, and however I can help, like I said, there's, you know, 
my my main existence in this industry is to build things that matter and to support other people doing the same. So happy to support anyone in any way I can and make any connections possible. So what kind of connections ideally are you hoping to make? Yeah. So, you know, I, I love to be able to connect technical talent to business, vice versa. So, if you know, if the technical side has a product already and they're looking for, you know, the funds or the team, I mean, I, I'm happy to see if I can make a connection there. But making the connections between, you know, people that should meet, whether it's because of the industry they're in, their experience or what what stage they're at. And sometimes that's just directly related to money. People is everything. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me again. Thanks, Dean. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YVR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.